Um, it's often been, I, I think, unfairly um, designated as a, a Cinderella ministry in the church. I'm not quite sure why. Um, but uh, we have people week after week that serve in kids' church, and we really do appreciate them from time to time. We, 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 we give some visuality to them as well, but they do a great job. And um, we uh, applaud Rachel's ministry in another nation uh, to reach a young generation for Jesus. And it's absolutely true, friends. The statistics of people coming to Jesus and becoming significant Christian leaders in their own right is huge in terms of them finding the Lord in the formative years. And uh, we believe increasingly that that nation's whole history could be turned around through people that are one for the Lord in their early age. So thank you for giving this morning. Thank you for sharing, Rachel, so well on that. I'm conscious that time's moving on, uh, but we want to come to the Word of God for a little time this morning. And if you've got a Bible, I'd like to turn your attention to uh, some of the most well-known verses in the whole of the New Testament, because that's our theme for the next three or four weeks. And um, uh, three weeks today is our big idea weekend. It's the, it's the May Bank holiday. And uh, you may remember two or three weeks ago, Chris and we only got a number of people up and how folks could get involved. And uh, <coughs> many people have responded at the Resource Hub with uh, giving themselves to that Saturday and Sunday and on that particular morning, this will really be a gathering centre for worship and prayer. And then we're going to do church up in Cotmane uh, in terms of a service and in terms of in just building on the practical expressions of what's taken place on the Saturday. And we'll give you a little bit more detail about that as we go forward. But the reality is, friends, unashamedly, that this church is an outward-facing church. One of the reasons it exists is for those that haven't already come. And we must always bear that in mind. It's not just for you. It is for you. And part of it being for you is right now. It's feeding the flock. It's uh, empowering people on a Sunday to get ready for Monday. It's teaching into our lives. It's sowing into us. But it's not just that. It's not just looking after our kids, but it's reaching other kids. It's not just looking after our people, but it's reaching people that still need to hear. And big idea, and I'll come to it in a moment in terms of ministry, is a great combination of word and works. And uh, over the next two or three weeks, we're just going to take one or two big themes so John 10 this morning, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Jesus said, very truly, I say, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and, and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will, never, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this as a figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate or the door for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the door, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and have it to the full. Or as the King James Version says, to have it more abundantly. And John 10.10 10 says that I am come that you might have life and have it in all of its fullness. And this morning, friends, in our big theme, I want to talk and I want to encourage you, I want to inspire you to live a big life. A big life. Now, this challenge of living a big life is for every one of us. You may be saying this morning, well, I, I couldn't possibly respond to the call of being a missionary because George Ridley going on about spiders and rats and creepy crawlies would have put me off forever. He didn't put Rachel off. 
Here's the truth, friends. The, the statistic for people that live within five miles of where they were born is huge. It's over 70%. But the reality is this. Every one of us are called to live a big life. Every one of us. It's not about just the preacher. It's not just about the leader of the church. It's not just about the missionary. It's not just about the evangelist. It's not just about the person that gets on Christian television. God has called every one of us to a life and a life in all of its fullness. Big lives. I want to tell you this morning what big life is not. Big life is not you enjoying celebrity. And this world is obsessed with celebrity. I was reading an article by a head teacher recently that says, we've got to start encouraging people to get back to their schooling rather than thinking that their big shot in life is to win uh, um, sort of uh, whatever the programs are on the telly. Uh, Britain's Got Talent, Pop Idol. We've got to stop thinking that that's the only way to success in life. Got to get back to the books. Got to get your head down. It's not about celebrity. It's not about fame. It's not about fortune. What an amazing sort of celebratory or, or rather commemorative weekend it's been. A hundred years since today that the Titanic went down. It was determined to win the blue ribbon of getting across the Atlantic in the fastest time. It ignored all the warnings and you know the ultimate end. I was fascinated tonight that re- to read that one of the Astor family died in the Titanic. He had $3,000 in his back pocket that was the equivalent today of $70,000. He was wealthy, he was rich, and he faced eternity. I don't know whether he was ready. You see, it's not about fortune, friends. The Bible says, what profits a man if he actually gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And by the way, John 10.10 10 has no financial connotation whatsoever. If you've read John 10.10 10 to get that Ferrari, you've completely misread it. It's nothing to do with financial prosperity. It's about living life in all of its fullness. It's nothing to do with power. All the things that the world grass have of here, friends, are not what this life is talking about. In fact, many people have found that when they get all those things, they're actually vacuous and vain. No, here Jesus is talking, friends, in the context initially to religious people. He says in chapter 1 that he's talking to the Pharisees. And those of you that have read the Gospels on a regular basis will know that Jesus had a continual run-in with religious people. And he still does today. He really does. Jesus still today has a problem with religious people. How many times have we been said, oh yeah, you're religious, aren't you? Somebody ran me up this week, gave a great sales talk on the phone about some telephone lottery ticket says, mate, I've never bought a lottery ticket in my life, so I'm not about to start buying one now. He says, why is that? I says, because I don't want to win the lottery. In it to win it. I'm not, I'm not bothered, friends. I'm not sure that this £46 million pounds that this couple down the road one the other week is actually going to sort everything out. But he says, oh, are you religious? He says, well, not really, but if you want to use that word, you can do. He says, well, I wouldn't want to impinge on that. Boy, he moved on to the next caller. <laughs> And really, friends, I'm not religious. I think religion's horrible. It was horrible in the New Testament. And Jesus continually confronted the reality of abundant life with religion. And what he was saying here was that these people, these religious people, were looking for a following. They were looking, friends, to exercise power over people. But Jesus said, actually, you're not true shepherds. You're thieves, you're hirelings, you're robbers. He says, people are looking for someone that will shepherd them, will care for them, will look after them. And people are recognizing my voice. The only way into this life is through the door. Jesus 
And anything else than that is false. And of course, when we read about the thief kill, uh, stealing and killing and destroying, we often think of the enemy of our souls. And the reality is this, friends, that we believe in a real Jesus. And we believe in a real Jesus that has authority over a real enemy. And you've heard a little bit this morning that if the enemy can steal and kill and destroy a young generation, you know he has no sentiment about it whatsoever. He loves to do that thing. That's why we need to pray increasingly that God will raise up people that will do exactly the opposite. Jesus here is speaking about people that will follow after him, that would not follow the ways of religion, that would not follow people, that would misuse them, would not follow people that were actually thieves and hirelings, but people that would come to Jesus Christ, enter through the gate and find real life. It's fascinating, this imagery of the shepherd. And we have to understand that the New Testament was written over 2,000 years ago in a Middle Eastern culture. And uh, the shepherd would have a very different relationship to his sheep as what we would experience in our own nation, where sheep are very vast and roam the hills and often are just controlled by a dog. But literally, um, in those days, there would be an intimate relationship between the shepherd and the sheep because the sheep weren't so much used for meat. In other words, there was a through flow, but more for wool. So they were around a bit longer. They would be named, a little bit like the donkeys on Skeggy Beach. You know, they would have a name. My sheep hear my voice and they know them and they follow me. They listen to the voice. You read it this morning. And there were two elements to the sheep pen. There was the communal sheep pen, where the shepherds would bring the sheep back at at night time. And it speaks there in the opening verses about the gatekeeper opening the gate. One guy with the key. You ever met one of those persons? He's got the key. Oh, no, you're not getting this community centre booked by me. You know. And they, they normally sort of got something about them. Well, the gatekeeper was the only person that had the key. The sheep would come in. And then the following day, the shepherds would come and call their sheep and the sheep would follow them because they would recognize the shepherd's voice. But sometimes the sheep couldn't get back to the communal pen and so they'd be out right on the hillside. The dead of night would come and the shepherd would decide that it would be too dangerous to take the sheep back to the communal fold. So he would create a temporary fold for the sheep. And the door for the, she- for the temporary fold would be the shepherd. He'd literally go to sleep like this. And if any sheep was tempted to come out during the night, the only way he could get out was to go over the shepherd. The shepherd would be alert in a moment. He would wake up and say, whoa, you can't do that. Because you could easily stray. Easily stray. His passion for his sheep was amazing. He laid down his life for his sheep. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And friends, this morning... That is a beautiful picture of Jesus. Ephesians says it's through him, Jesus, that we have access to the Father. You cannot get to God through religion. You cannot get to God through your own efforts. You cannot get to God by buying it. You cannot even get to God by coming to church every week. The only way that you can get to God is by stepping through the gates into God's presence through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He says in Hebrews that we live and have confidence to enter by the new, into the most holy place, by the new and living way. The Old Testament, the most holy place was out there. It was way off. It was the place that only the, old, uh, the high priest could access once a year. And that often with fear and trembling. But the New Testament is different. There's a new order. There's a new day. 
Here's the reality of a big life today. That you could have been a Christian just a few days, a few hours, a few minutes. You could have been a Christian years and years and years. But you have access to the holy place today. The very presence of God. The very heartbeat of the Almighty. The very need to sit on and claim him father. Why? Because the good shepherd laid down his life and created a door which you could go through. No, friends, this is a call to life today. I want you to understand for a moment what we're really talking about. I am come that you might have life and have it in superabundance. The word in the original language of the New Testament is a very simple word, zoe. And it literally means the life of the age to come. The life of the age to come. I've been reading Gordon Fee recently, and I wonder where I've been in life to spend so long before I've got to this man. Brilliant. Gordon Fee is a Pentecostal theologian. He's the professor of New Testament studies in Regent's College, Vancouver, Canada. And so he writes uh, with a great sort of uh, Bible teaching credibility, but passionate about spirit-filled living. Brilliant. And Fee writes on this particular passage exactly about the life of the age to come. I am come that you might have life. In other words, friends, when you step into Jesus, you get a little foretaste of what is to come in all of eternity. That's what God's talking about. He's saying that your old life, your dead life, your sinful life, the life that revolved around you is a life that he's never going to give you what you really want it to give There are people around this congregation this morning that have chased the fast cars, that have chased wealth, that have chased fame, that have chased celebrity, that have chased multiple relationships. And deep within your hearts, there's always been a vacuum. It has not given life. But Jesus says, I am come that you might have life and have it in all of its fullness. I am come that you might have life of the age to come. I am come that you might have something of a glimpse of what eternity is going to be like. I am come that you might live this superabundance of living, not then, but also now. And that life at times, friends, paradoxically means dying. That life at times means surrendering. That life at times means yielding. That life at times means placing Jesus in front of your life. That life means in the early 90s, as a Bible college student, when she was frightened to death of creepy crawlies and rats, said, I'm going anyway. And when she went, God said, I'd like you to stay. And somebody said, I'm going to stay. She sold us the nation now. She doesn't want to be a Brit anymore. She wants to be an Albanian, fully fledged. I find that very moving, actually, Rachel. Amazing. It's the life of the age to come. He's totally contrary to this world, friends. And I love people quoting John 10.10 10, on the basis that actually it's meaning that they're going to get what everybody else in this world wants, which is materialism and fame and adulation and power. It's nothing to do with it. It's the complete opposite. The life of the age to come, friends, is nothing to do with those things. It's the most amazing life that anyone could live in. I want to say this morning that if you've never become a Christian, that is a follower of Jesus If there's never been a day in your life where you've stepped through the door, where you've stepped through Jesus, then I want to say with absolute respect this morning, you're not a believer. This church is not going to make you a believer. It's only Jesus that can bring you into a relationship with God. And I encourage you, and I'm going to give opportunity before we close, for you to step through the gate this morning to become a believer. But here's the challenge also. I'm asking and pleading even and 
long in this morning that every one of us on the discipleship journey of following Jesus in Arena Church, which is ramping up, I don't know whether you've noticed, but God's turning it up. God's taking us up to a further place. God's accelerating this. God's saying, friends, we're not just messing around with church. God's called us here in Arena, Ilkeston, Mansfield, around this M1 corridor to be devoted followers of Jesus. I'm encouraging this morning to step into the bigness of the life that God has called you to live. Because it's a life that expresses something of the age to come. Here's what they speak as words of welcome over Chinese believers that joined the Chinese house church. How many of you know that's growing? Almost with people not being able to keep count. (coughs) But when people step into Jesus, other Chinese Christians pray over them. Jesus now has eyes to see with, new eyes. Jesus now has new ears to listen with. Jesus has new hands to work with. And Jesus has a new heart to love others with. What a welcome. That's the life of the age to come. That's the superabundance of what God's wanting to bring into our lives in Jesus' name. And briefly this morning, I want to just give you four things that flow out of that superabundant life. I want to encourage you. I want to inspire you. I want you to be passionate about living a big life. It may be, friends, that you live in Ilkeston for the rest of your life. That's not the deal. That is not the deal. The, the, the reality is this, friends, that it's the bigness of what God wants to do in you that absolutely will make enough difference in you, but also powerfully touch others. And notice, as I come to that, that the wisdom of God is that he, he takes foolish people and despised people and weak people and people that others would pass by to confound the wisdom of this world and use people in an amazing way. You've really got to stop. You should have been here yesterday morning listening to the lie that says you'll never be good enough. God loves people that think they can't be good enough. You are beautifully positioned for God to use you in an amazing way when you don't think you're good enough. But you start believing the lie that prevents you realizing that God wants to take hold of you and use you in an amazing way for his glory and praise. So here's four things that big lives have. Number one, they have influence. Two or three weeks ago, Leonie read from this platform from Matthew 5. 14 to 16, about being salt, about being light, and about being a city on a hill. That's influence. I don't have time to unpack it this morning, but that is an influential life. The root meaning of the word influence is is a a flowing from one to another. It's action invisibly exercised through you that touches others. Uh, it, It has some correlation with the word influenza. I know an Italian word. And how many times have you said, oh no, I don't want to come near you, you might catch it. Here's the truth, friends. People have got to start catching it off us. That's influence. And want to catch it off us. People come into your workplace and say, I want to catch off you what you have got. Because there is something in you of the life that is to come that actually exposes my life in the now as being actually pretty sham. Influence. Somebody says that leadership is influence. I'm not quite sure it's as simplistic as that, but I think I understand and know what he means. Influencing people. And influence at times, friends, has to be intentional. But also influence is intuitive and natural. Influence, friends, is touching a younger generation. Influence is making a difference where you live on your street. Influence is carrying high value of integrity in your workplace when everybody else rails against it. Influence is that you can be involved in a situation that can, that can 
change things amazingly in a social context, in a family context. Let me give you the power of influence because there are people in this church this morning and you're the first people that have ever become Christians in your family. And the potential for you to influence one generation to another is amazing. And uh, I've mentioned a similar illustration before, but I think it's just worthy to mention again today. But probably well over 50 years ago, there were two women that became Christians. They lived about 50 miles apart. One was Sharon's mom, who had Sharon quite late in life, and she's been in glory for many years now. And the other one was my grandma, who lived to 91, and uh, sort of went kicking and screaming as she, as she went. Um, very different in personality. Sharon's mum was very quiet. My grandma was very loud. Sharon's mum would be very thoughtful in what she said. My grandma would say, why use one word when a thousand can do? And so they would be very, very different in how they would speak. But the reality is that these two people in two different towns 50 miles away at a similar time got wonderfully saved. The first people in their situation, maybe Sharon's maybe slightly different, but the first people to make a significant Christian commitment. My grandma sort of came from Lancashire. They moved to Nottingham because they wanted work with granddad. They were musical people. They loved life. They thought they got it all sorted. But she had a radical conversion to Jesus. Sharon's mum was a miner's wife. Tough, tough, tough. Lumwood Barnsley. Whoa. You've got to be tough to live in Lumwoods. Even today, 50 years ago, it was scary. Radically saved. Fredding and pioneering a church in a little Nissan on the edge of town pulled together a group of believers that loved God. They wouldn't even understand the power of influence, but they carried it. They prayed it. They believed it. They started, friends, to pass it from one generation to another. So I've got the privilege this morning of preaching the word. And part of the reason is because my grandma prayed for me. I know she did. I remember going to, she had a great big garden, and it was bigger than our garden. I used to like to go and play football in the school holidays, that blue plastic ball. Oh, I loved it. Couldn't use it on a Sunday. You know, Sunday, grandma, I'm going to play football. No. Well, what do we do on Sunday? We listen to granddad snoring. That's what we do on Sunday. <laughs> no football on Sunday. And some of you are looking at me gormless. But it was another age. It was another age. She did it for all the right reasons. Couldn't watch telly on a Sunday. Until we had that documentary on Port, uh, Saul of Tarsus, then it were okay. It were okay to watch that. <sighs> the life of Paul, we could watch that, we were religious. <clears throat> but her grandson's before you this morning ministering the word. And her great-granddaughter stood up yesterday morning in front of 40 people and ministered the word. And Sharon's a daughter of a, somebody that got influence. And this week, her... Uh, her mum's grandson uh, has been one of the senior leaders of one of the most influential Christian conferences in the Southern Hemisphere, Planet Shakers Church in Australia. Some of you may have gone on the web and YouTube this week to see it. Influence. Influence. These two people never go in a magazine, friends. Nobody knows about them. But from one generation to another. And if you're the first Christians that have ever become believers in your church, you've got to see a bigger issue. You've got to see second, third, fourth, fifth generations following Jesus. You've got to see that you're sowing something into them of the bigness of the superabundant life that says, I won't want to do anything else but live like my dad lives. I won't want to do anything else but follow what my mom believes. It's influence. It's mighty. 
And it's powerful. Jonathan Edwards, not the guy that used to throw himself in a pit and won a gold medal for us, but the other one, the one who he was named after. The 18th century American preacher and revivalist. What a man of God. But he got married. He had some kids. And many, many years later, they did an analysis of Edwards' influence. And they did it over 700 of his descendants. Listen to this. 300 of them became preachers of the gospel. 65 of them became college professors. 60 of them wrote a book. Three of them served in Congress. The power of influence. Nothing to do with a pulpit. It's the bigness of your life that affects one generation to another. Big lives, friends, I move on, has patience. There's two meanings of the word patience in the Bible. One is long-temperedness. That means not losing your temper all the time. Can I make it? It means that when you're stuck behind that person on Wednesday morning that's driving like a Sunday afternoon driver, you know, I can feel it now. You know, that you don't lose your temper. You don't lose your temper. It means that, friends, you're not one of those people that come to church and I never know how I'm going to take you. I'm forever walking on eggshells. Wonder how they're going to be this week. That's not the Spirit of God. That is not the Spirit of God. That is not patience. That is not the fruit of patience. But the other expression of patience is perseverance. So the, old, the, the older translations of Hebrews 12 say, run the race with patience. But more accurately, it means run the race with perseverance. And if you want to live a big life, you've got to learn to be perseverant. See, the Bible says that those that sow in tears will reap with joy. The Bible says that if we don't become weary of doing good, that in the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Our enduring, persevering attitude, friends, will on occasions be tested. It will be tested because you will feel like giving up. You will feel that it's not worth it. But big lives persevere. Recently, I read a book called To Plant a Walnut Tree. I thought, somebody gave it me. I thought, oh, what is this? To Plant a Walnut Tree. Anyway, I began to read it. And I got really into it. And it's about a guy called Trevor Waldock. Trevor's an interesting guy. He's involved in leadership consultancy. But there was something gnawing away in his life that said there's something more than this. There's something bigger. There's something bigger than what I'm doing. And he went on a journey, friends. And the only way I can describe it is he went on a journey of discovering eldership. Now, please don't just define eldership by what we'd consider a church elder, a very worthy calling, by the way. But it was bigger than that. It was about influence. And he met a guy called Eddie. And Eddie helped him on the journey. And Eddie talked about his dad. And you understand, friends, that to plant a walnut tree, that seed takes the longest to actually turn itself into fruit. I'm going to read you the final few paragraphs of the book. It won't spoil it for you if you read it. But it says this. Eddie texts me to arrange a meeting. He had said he'd pick me up at 8.30 in the morning. And I asked where we were going. He says, that's a surprise. That worries me when people say that. That's a surprise. We headed north and then west and came off the motorway to a city I knew well, but was happy to drive past. Ooh, edgy. We headed into a housing estate surrounding the city. After we pulled up outside the houses, Eddie turned off the engine, got out of the car. I followed him along the path. He took us to the side of a row of houses. When suddenly he stopped, he says, there it is. 
There's what I said to Eddie, the walnut tree. You mean the walnut tree? That we're talking about a real walnut tree? He says, yeah, that's the walnut tree. He said, the man who said that the most unselfish thing you could do with your life was to plant a walnut tree was my dad. He actually planted one and here it is. He died years ago. Generations later, the seed that he planted is now mature. He never got to see it, but I thought that you would like to. I was speechless and humbled. As I looked across the fence, I saw a four meter high walnut tree that had started out life as a seed no more than two centimeters wide. The man who planted it didn't live to see this magnificent tree, but he had had the foresight to plant it as a legacy for another generation. He lived a big life because he understood the need for patience. Friends, I I believe, and this is not hype, that God's going to send a remarkable move of God on our nation. I believe there's a generation that are going to grab it. I believe there's yet to become a revival spirit that's going to see thousands and thousands of people come to Jesus. I'd like to be part of it. But I tell you not, if I don't see it, I'm committing a big life to patience that's going to sow it into other people so that they can see it. That's the journey. That's the journey. Not only do big lives have influence and patience, but big lives have obedience. The prophet said to King Saul in the Old Testament, to obey is better than sacrifice. Jesus said these words to disciples. He says, if you're my friends, you will do what I ask. John writing later in the epistle said, this is the love of God that we keep his commands and his commandments are not burdensome or onerous. I'll come to that in a minute. But big lives live obediently. You see, big lives do not waste time. Big lives do not waste time on arguing with God about what he's already spoken about. It's called the Bible. They don't waste time arguing with God about what he's already spoken about. Big lives do not reinvent the Bible to suit their lifestyle. We've got a lot of that these days. Well, I'm not sure. We're living in 2012. God didn't mean that. Yeah, he did. He did. It's the eternal word that endures forever. It's settled forever in heaven. Big lives do not push back on obedience. Making obedience onerous. Because the love of God says that obedience is not onerous. If it's onerous, friends, you've got a problem with your love life with Jesus. Because this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not a burden. You see, the disciple, the big life that's in obedience devours the word, finds out what God wants to say, and then puts it into action. Because there's a lot of messing about. That is the journey. Finally, friends, big lives have, a, uh, have benevolence. Jesus, in Acts 10, 38, went about doing good. Doing good. The little piece I've written for the diary sheet this week reminds us that there is a correlation in the scriptures between works and word. I come from a tradition where we love to minister the word and sometimes perhaps misguidedly in the past we've said we'll preach the word and we'll let the liberals get on with doing the works. But they don't really believe the Bible so we'll let them get on with it. And prophetically friends, prophetically God has stirred something in the church in this generation. You don't have to be a big church to hand out six uh, tins of Heinz baked beans. But for some churches that's where it starts. But here's the prophetic journey of the church. It is about the word. And we belong to, and if I can say the word, are proud to belong to a word preaching church. We love the Bible. But it's about works. 
It's about getting out there. It's about ministering. As someone says, preach the gospel if you must. Sorry, preach the gospel and if you must use words. He wasn't giving pushback on preaching the gospel. He was saying, friends, it must work out in our lives. Big lives of benevolence. Big lives love mercy offerings. Big lives think, I can do a bit more. I can fill one of those grids in on the van myself. Big lives look for opportunity to be salt and light in a city. Big lives, friends, want to change others. Not only spiritually, but also as an expression practically. There isn't a divide. They harmonize. They work together. They minister together. And that's where we need to live. See, big lives, friends, are not determined by this world. They're not determined, friends, by the place of your birth or residence. They're not determined by your postcode. NG85NE. That's where I grew up. Don't all Google it or visit it today, otherwise you'll freak the neighbours out. But NG85NE, I'm I'm not defined by that postcode. Because people would drive down that road and think, phew, phew, phew. I don't think anything good could come out of this road. I'm not defined by that. Big lives aren't defined by the size of their financial assets. Big lives aren't defined by their education, whether it was good or bad. Big lives are not defined by what other people will say about you. I want to tell you, friends, however nice you want to be, there's going to be somebody that's going to say something nasty about you. See, I think I'm a pretty reasonable bloke, and I never get amazed at nasty things that people say about me. Never cease to be amazed. Happened again this week, not from somebody in Arena Church. Let me be quickly say. But somebody, somebody out there, somebody out there that took a cheap shot, However nice I want to be, however nice, you just, but I'm not defined by that. I'm not defined by that person's opinion. I'm defined, friends, by the fact there was a day as an 11-year-old kid that I went through the gate. I didn't understand it all theologically, but I went through the gate. I went through the door. I was embraced by Jesus. He said, here's a taste of the life that is to come. And friends, the more I pursued it, the more I wanted. I'm a long way on from 11, sadly. But, you know, I'm never more passionate about wanting life than now. This life, the abundant life, the life that God has called us to give. John said in John 17, this is eternal life that we might, okay. This is eternal life that we might know him. So we're through. Big lives. Big lives. If you've never come to Jesus this morning then there's the opportunity to come. If you've never come to Jesus this morning, then there's the opportunity to come. And uh, I want to pray in a moment. We on? I want to I pray in a moment over people. I'm going to be through in a few moments. Time's gone. I want to pray over folks in a moment that have felt contained. See, because God's called you to live a big life. You may have felt continually belittled, but God's called you to live a big life. You may have lived in Ilkeston all your life, and you may want to live in Ilkeston all your life. That's fantastic. It may be that this morning that you're inspired. There's something stirred in your spirit to be a missionary. That's how it works often. Get a missionary in, something spurs in the spirit. You may have to go on that journey. Maybe a call over your life to be a preacher, a leader. There'll be all sorts of things at times that will come and stop you. But Jesus says, I'm come that you might have life. Life 
a taste of the age to come and you might have it in superabundance. And if you're moving to that life this morning, you will carry influence. You will exercise patience, perseverance. You will yield your obedience afresh. And you will bring benevolence that will only touch this generation, friends. But we're sowing to generations to come that will carry a revival spirit that will see Jesus do amazing things in the earth for the cause of his kingdom. Let's pray.